Hi, welcome to The Interop. This is the show which explores the decentralized economic networks that make up the interchain. My name is Sebastian Couture, and today we've got a bit of a special treat for you. I've got my buddy uh, Richard Catano here, who's going to be guest co-hosting guest co this episode. And we have our guest, Jakub Wojciechowski, who uh, is CEO of Redstone. Um, so actually, th this is interesting because like we met last week at DevConnect in Amsterdam and it was like a total chance meeting and we ended up having dinner and, you know, we got into like these deep conversations about um, like, you know, crypto and data availability and modular blockchains and stuff like that. And like you guys are doing some interesting stuff also with Arweave. And like I was like, OK, I want I want to like dive into this. And um, and Richard, being someone who I know and trust and who's building on Arweave, I thought like this is the best uh, combination to have here um, on on the show. So thanks thanks for the two thanks to you for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, our pleasure. So uh, yeah yeah um, I mean maybe uh, just Richard uh, perhaps just uh, give us give our listeners a, a bit of background on yourself and um, what you're doing uh right now uh yeah so um well been been in the blockchain uh, crypto um world for quite some time since uh, nearly the beginning and that's how i kind of got to know you seb early on and uh currently we're building a comp our company accord we're building this uh privacy layer on top of our weave and trying to you know build a new set of uh, storage tools based on web3 concepts um, where, yeah, where Arweave as a, a permanent storage uh, layer is providing uh, a bulk of those services. And we're also working with Redstone uh, quite a bit on, on the development of our protocols and the smart contracts that run those protocols. And that's, uh, I guess, sort of how we all kind of converge together in Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, R Richard's a, a Bitcoin OG. He's been around <laughs> since, like, even before I have. And, um, yeah, we actually co-founded a company together a couple of years ago. Uh, those oh, yeah, I forgot who, to mention that part. <laughs> <laughs> those who listen to Epicenter, uh, you know, will remember uh, Stratum. And so Richard was the CEO of Stratum. And, um, you know, we've, uh, we've, we've come through that uh, intact. And so I'm happy to be doing this with you. And uh, yeah, Jakub, thanks for coming on. Can you, can you tell, uh, tell us a bit about your background and like how you got into this space? Mm -hmm. Sure. So thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm a computer scientist by trade and education. Then I used to work in traditional finance, um, like uh, fintech, insurance tech, etc. And in 2016, we decided to look for something new. Me and my wife we moved to to London. I was looking to to explore new technologies, and that's how I discovered blockchain participated in the very first blockchain hackathon, lucky enough to be to be a winner. That was the year when the Ethereum came out and then I co-founded a startup. It was called Alice, it was a philanthropic startup. And then obviously it's not a, the, the greatest business you can imagine in terms of the commercial potential. So we, we slowly started to win down the startup when the COVID struck. And in the meantime, I was smart contract auditor and participated in multiple hackathons and that's how i discovered more and more issues with the current implementation of the oracles and decided to to do something about it joining the, the r with uh, first batch incubator program 
Hello. Yeah, that, that's okay. interesting. So, the um, so so you guys are both doing stuff in the Arweave uh, ecosystem. Um, Richard, you're building a company in uh, in the Arweave, Arweave ecosystem, and and so are you, Jacob. Um, so th so this is an ecosystem that I, I I don't have a whole lot of visibility on. Um, you know, we we interviewed Sam on Epicenter, and like I thought, okay, this is like a cool um, data storage play, and but but they have a really I think unique vision compared to some of the other uh, platforms that, that that I know of, like IPFS and SIA Skynet, and then these sorts of things. Like, what's what's unique about the Arweave ecosystem and about the Arweave technology that most people perhaps don't really grasp or, or understand? And you know, maybe maybe both of you can can give a shot at that. Okay, so I can start. So, what I really like about the ecosystem is. <clears throat> it's very technical, like in, an, in a lot of crypto universe, you get different kind of people. Some are there for quick, quick money, like trying to to shield some crazy coins. And I've never came across anyone like that in our with everything. It's like very technical, engineering focused, super friendly, cooperative. So like for me, this is amazing place for builders to try out the ideas etc so yeah the, the cultural aspect is like super important for me as well yeah i think that one of the <clears throat> i think one of the important things that Arweave brings is this uh you know this idea of permanence and and i think it's quite timely um of a solution you know so i think um i think when i discovered Arweave shortly after it was like an nft craze and all these nfts and people were spending tens of thousands of dollars for these images and they were stored on uh temporary protocols such as ipfs or <laughs> or even worse some centralized solutions and so um having the ability to write those bits out onto a chain and then being able to incentivize miners to um you know, to to protect that data into the future, I, I thought that was quite novel, and it was really a zero to one that I haven't seen before. Um, and kind of extending that observation outward more, one of the things that I saw is just it's really the it's really the opening door for what we call Web three, right? Which is complete ownership, being able to bypass centralized forms of control and restricted access to certain types of media and things like that. Are we kind of blows blows past all of that um so yeah and then and then there are also these like kind of like political and social kind of like reasons that are we've um exists uh, which are in terms like you know preventing censorship and so one of the interesting projects that we, we see right now is someone or a team built a bot uh, that is recording like very sensitive documents in the ukraine uh a russian aggression and 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 making sure that they're able to store those documents so that later on historians can kind of filter through it and like find different things about it. So I, I, I don't know, I find on different, um, on different layers, different levels, like uh, Arweave is quite, quite an interesting project. And that, that's what um, like sold us. That's what got us really interested in it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and I, th I think one of the things also that, and we'll, you know, we'll talk about this here, that, that Arweave uh, sort of innovates on is, 
the the smart contract paradigm i think in in our weave uh from from what you guys have told me is like totally different from uh from what we know in ethereum or solana or you know the cosmos ecosystem and you know one of the things that i want to talk about today is this shift towards more modular blockchains where there's like a there's a data layer uh and smart contract ex execution happens like in a separate layer and this is a trend that i think is happening uh, more broadly in the ecosystem with projects like uh, like Celestia and like even Ethereum 2 moving towards that model. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I'd love to get, get into that and, and like un get a deeper understanding of all this stuff. But, but first, I mean, maybe Kuba for you, like um, what, what made you want to, what made you want to spend your time on, on oracles? Because, you know, you know, like if, if you look at the space, like, there are, are you know, multiple companies and projects building uh, Oracle uh, systems, you know, like Chainlink, and there's a whole bunch of other ones. And so, um, you know, wh wh where where did you see in this space like a project, a problem that really needed to be solved, and how is Redstone addressing that? <clears> Totally. <throat> so it started out of my own frustration with the current level of Oracle. So I was participating in, in multiple hackathons. And often we got a really good idea and you need some some additional data, like the data about interest rates on chain or, or, or the uh, <clears throat> liquidity of different pools, etc. It's like perfectly easy to grab from the off-chain environment. But if you try to consume that within a smart contracts, then you can um, encounter some issues. And I was really curious, like, why the current incumbents with a lot of experience and definitely very major technology cannot cover a wide range of different uh, feeds. And definitely the, the most popular uh, design pattern of providing data to, to, to smart contracts is still through the on-chain storage which solves a lot of issues with, with data availability, with the security of data transmissions, etc. But on the other hand, it's very expensive. So I think there was a moment when this the, the cost side was actually really, really heavy and it was like mm, preventing the, the Oracle ecosystem to cover more and more assets or any interesting data feeds. And yeah, so I was trying to do something about it because, as, as you mentioned, Chainlink is, I think, it's an amazing company. It's got a great reputation, but the, the problem that it solves right now was a problem of the, the blockchain ecosystem from like three or four years ago when there was only like a few few dozen of interesting tokens, blue chip tokens, and only Ethereum was a, a very dominant network. While at the moment we got like like a Cambrian explosion of not only layer one networks that are EVM compatible, but also a plenty of L2 networks and obviously even thousands of interesting uh, assets that you can query price of, not to mention other interesting indicators. So, so for me, the, the goal was to build a really scalable solution that can out of the box cater to any EVM compatible chain and also to lower the, the data access cost to minimum. So, so we got a crazy idea of or utilizing for storage 
a network that was designed to be a storage network. That's how we encounter RWIF instead of utilizing a storage of EVM chains. When, when on that kind of an architecture, the storage is heavily penalized because you focus more on the throughput and you want to um, discourage people from extensive usage of input and output. So we use RWIF for storage and we got a really innovative technology of passing data from RWIF or from within our nodes to any VM compatible chains. I, I can go deeper into the technical aspects if you're interested, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, but uh, but so so you guys brand yourself as a cross chain oracle. Um, what what does that really mean? Huh? And like, are you do you mean from that that you're pulling data from different chains, or that you're able to provide data to different chains, or or both? And yeah, how does so, that actually work in, in, compared to like this more uh, uh, traditional uh, oracle design uh, that you were talking about earlier? Yes, yeah, so I'm happy to, to take so. Uh, translate shortly, it's both, but it's not a pure marketing. I think a lot of oracles can say that they're cross-chain because if there's new chain, then can spend like three, four months to integrate with that new chain and be compatible. In, in our case, if tomorrow there is a new EVM compatible chain, we can start serving data to that chain without any changes in our architecture. So because we do not touch the storage of the target chain, we do not need to, to integrate. So, so we are really, really focused on being interoperable. And yeah, it's, it's actually a, a fact, let's say deeply rooted in, in, in our architecture. Okay. Um, so what, what, kind of, what kind of data uh, sources do you pull from? What, what's the... The kinds of data that we can um, we can we can get from Redstone. So, so, so at the moment we got sixty data sources, but we are still like quite early, and it's also very easy to add new data sources. So we work with a few projects, and we got an open architecture. Code is fully open source, and then even can implement their own fetchers, connectors, adapters to external data sources, and in terms of the, the, the price feed that we currently cover, that obviously like crypto tokens, more than a thousand tokens, and from other interesting price feeds, we got currencies, a lot of currencies from, for example, the, the lady of South America, which we, we get a lot of requests for that, and uh, stock prices, commodities. What we are looking to are Obviously, the mm, NFTs, which will be coming soon. We got the capacity with the low cost to cover a lot of the NFT prices. And also, we'll be rolling quite soon a very customizable Oracle. So anyone can, can specify in a, a user interface, set of data feeds, and then start pulling data. So yeah, our idea is to be as broad and as possible to, to truly utilize the, the low operating cost. So I had a quick question, maybe um, a little bit to dive in a little bit deeper from your introduction um, with the Oracle service. So kind of the two aspects that I think that are kind of um, um, a relevant uh, discussion to have around Oracles is uh, basically things like latency and uh, gas costs and, um, 
you know, how are your staking against that? Could you talk a little bit more um, about what you've seen different between like other chains and Arweave, and then also what were some of the challenges that you may have experienced uh, in trying to solve those aspects? Or, and if you want to describe those aspects a little bit further, that'd be great as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so trying to start from the, the beginning, the yeah the latency. So so, so currently we we offer in a stable way that the, the price feeds refresh every ten seconds. We've been experimenting with one second interval. It's it's quite fine. Although some of the off-chain um, data sources are not as fast, so probably we need to to better go locate our nodes for that. But I think it, it, it should be possible. In terms of gas costs, we, we got the hacky way of actually smuggling the, the messages, <laughs> leveraging our user interaction. So we append the, the price feed in a special format, fully signed, so it could be cryptographically verified to a call data of a user transaction. And then every user that would like to, to execute the transaction within the context of that price carries the, the price feed. And then we extract it, verify the, the origin of a price feed, check at the protocol level what the protocol can trust a given source. And if everything's fine, if the timestamp is fine, the kind of type of data is fine, if the, the, the creator of the data is also verified by a protocol, a user may access that price information. And all of that's written purely in a Solidity assembly to, to be as efficient as possible. And mm -hmm. yeah, like, like in total, that the whole operation is about 10,000 gas costs, which is super cheap. So if you compare it to the usual cost of the, the referential price contract data access, which is about like 20 or, or 30,000 gas. So we, we are very competitive on that level. Yeah, interesting. I know one of the one of the other topics I was speaking earlier with Seb was, um, I think it was, oh, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I think um, there was this article written by Vitalik where he he made the suggestion that Uniswap could function as an Oracle, uh, quite efficient Oracle. Um, what what's your view on that? Um, kind of like this um, Dex versus um, Oracle, and where do you see advantages and disadvantages between the two, and what? What's your outlook on that subject? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So yeah. I'm, I'm really impressed by by the amazing job, especially by the Uniswap V3 on the on the yeah. TWAPs and yeah. how they how they optimize that the whole solution. So it's yeah, it's it's a great step forward. I'm a bit cautious always into trusting a single source of truth. So even mm -hmm. if there's like a lot of liquidity in, in, in Uniswap, it's still a single service. So anything can go down wrong with a single service. So always it's better to have some some backup, some redundancy in terms of the data sources. So that's that my concern. Yeah, we are actually, as as you know, all of the data has been persisted to R with it. At the moment, we got almost like a one full year of uh, data records that are publicly available. For anyone, and we started. We recently hired a, a person who is dedicated to to crunch those data and actually to answer questions that I got in my mind for a very long time. Like, are we there yet? Are the the decks, let's say, the data quality from Dexas comparable to to the biggest of chain players? And what are the right. differences, etc. Yep. To try to find the patterns. Yeah, I, I'd love to share the the insight. Yeah. 
Yeah. Actually, that that what you're discussing, I find very interesting in that discussion, which is so. If you compare the nature of, let's say, like how a DEX works, there tends to be a lot of arbitrage to find, you know, what, um, and, you know, to f f find a, a spot price between. But you're always kind of like arbitraging back and forth or counterbalancing the trades that are being made, I should say. Whereas an order book, um, when you place an order and you're buying something at a specific price. All right. So, so the price mechanisms between the two types of exchanges, um, there, there seems to be a, a dependency going one way, and that is saying that like the those who are arbitraging between a DEX may be referencing centralized exchanges uh, for spot price. I, I, this is just kind of like loose thinking. But what I mean, what you, you were kind of talking about this. What is your were your thoughts more about that? Like, do you find that? Um, that this phenomenon is probably expected early on, but as DEXs become um, more utilized and you know more efficient, that maybe this um, um, you know this gap between the two may may kind of go away. Yes, it's definitely like having um, a larger liquidity on the DEX and a greater more efficient. Yeah, we have. Uh, the actually it's, it's a very interesting topic like <laughs> how the how the v3 actually like manage the the volatility of price so on one hand yeah it's, it's like really great to utilize the liquidity on the other if you get out of this supported range you really risk like a very sudden drop so that, yeah. that's also like super interesting like how it will play out in the terms of the data stability and obviously there's also like an answered question like how to actually utilize these TWAPs from, from Uniswap was the was the proper range because if it's like too short then yep. Yep. keeping in mind that it's, it's a DEX and it could be connected to a transaction you risk into really smart arbitrage. But if it's too too long then you lose the, the accuracy of mm -hmm. price data especially important from the leverage. So yeah I think yeah we've been discussing with a few teams what's what's the like a, the best approach to that and I, I don't think like anyone yeah. has got an answer. <laughs> I think it's like um, cause I, I, I'm a big fan of V3, Uniswap V3. Um, it seems to me to treat, to treat trading on V3 sort of like a, um, limit order and on, and rather where a limit order would immediately sell or buy, you know, based on your position that you put in, I, it, it's more along a curve, yeah. right? So you're selling along a curve until you're, you're sold out of the range. Um, I think what could make V3 better is um you know f faster confirmation times being able to swap in and out i think one of the things that makes it unusable is not being able to get your order in or to shift the range if you need to and paying extreme you know paying high amounts of gas to do that um so i don't know maybe on a different platform that has a faster execution it might be more practical to use but i, I think one of the big drawbacks like you said is like you know if your range is not perfectly in some kind of action you're gonna you're gonna lose out. So, mm -hmm. yeah. or from a global point, if if the range is like too thin, then definitely the data if it's too thin, yeah. market yeah. Yeah, as as mm -hmm. as an oracle. Sometimes you you see like a you know very long spike, like somebody's just trying to like liquidate you know their entire position, right? And um, you know it's like sometimes if you, if if the range bounces in between that line, they're just you know they're sweeping basically sweeping mm -hmm. a large amount of fees. It's really interesting.
Yeah, I agree. So probably there's always like a, like a trade-off between like super, let's say, efficient price discovery wins. You should have the, the same liquidity forever, price range, and and uh, profitability of liquidity providers. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it could yeah. be like perfectly matched. I'd like to talk a little bit about the um, the the design, uh, the like Redstone's uh, design, um, and specifically like what the tech stack looks like. Um, can you describe like what what that is, and so who are the data providers, and how are they incentivized to provide good data? Um, yeah, like what what does that look like from a sort of like a design perspective? Yeah, of course. So so a data provider is actually a, a node that um, publish kind of, a, we call it manifesto, but it's kind of a publicly available SLA, like what kind of sources are going to be utilized, what kind of uh, aggregation methodology to be used, whether it's like media and TWAP or anything like that. And also what's like refresh interval, and then it's being um, accountable according to that kept accountable according to that manifesto by by users who consume the data also the the data provider specify the the pricing policy and that at the moment obviously we, we use the, the easiest one as a, as a subscription but we are going to to experiment with a pay as you go pricing model and could be charged per single price fee too. that could be interesting for the space and yeah is so that's on the revenue side and also on the mm, let's say guarantee side the, the data provider in case the price is not prepared according to that manifesto maybe it wasn't being delivered or a data provider cannot defend that it was taken from given sources and aggregated properly then a data provider could be slashed and lose part of the, the collateral, which is strongly required for a provider. So that's kind of an interest mechanism. As I mentioned, the, the prices are, that's also like super interesting. Like how can you take a, a price from a data provider and, and pass it to, to a target blockchain as we do not push it to, to the storage. So, so we've been thinking a lot how to secure this relayer part so it's very similar to like a zero x relayer but we used a lot of redundancy mechanism so we got our own light nodes like super dump nodes just taking data and copying data and making sure sure that the signatures are correct we also integrated with streamer which is a super interesting decentralized pubs up mechanism having like few few thousand nodes so it's really not easy to ddos the service especially it's like in general, it's not easy to DDoS a pops up mechanism. And yeah, we also got our own uh, caching servers, which are much more heavy, but but can handle tons of traffic. So we got these different levels to, to security transfer data. And obviously we got Arweave as a as a permanent archive. We serve two purposes. First, you can have a full track of record of any data provider if you're doing due diligence and choosing the, the best one. So, so there's an the highest level of transparency and also like super important for us to have a regular heartbeat on the activity of oracles so to detect any issues as early as possible so if, if the oracles are um, 
force to, to provide the information at every interval, then, then, then we can detect any issues and quite, quite early. So, so on the guarantee side, <clears throat> you, you said that the, the data providers uh, provide a, they, they submit a bond and they can be mm -hmm. slashed. Is it an opportunistic model where uh, someone can come and provide a proof that that the um, that data wasn't provided correctly, or that there are discrepancies in the data, or or is it uh, or is it another sort of what's what's the, what's the consensus model, I guess, around <laughs> like providing guarantees? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so currently, uh, we use and is this sorry? It, 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 one, and one, so one uh -huh, follow up: sure. is is this in an Ethereum contract? Or is, is no, it no, like... no. So, so okay. it's actually the the smart with contract based on Arif. We call it dispute resolution mechanism. And in the in the current form, when we it's it's not live used, but at the level that we are in, uh, we got a, the very democratic mechanism. Like you, you start a dispute, then you can have a counter argument. Then in case of the one of the parties not not happy with the outcome, it could be escalated and, and the, uh, at the very the extreme case, the whole network needs to to vote who was right. So it's like very still very manual. We are experimenting with automatic proofs, but it will probably come later. Hmm. Okay. And so and so the the data providers will will set their bond in in what currency is it like R is it R uh, so the, the bond is requested to, to be set in our token but that the token is not launched so okay yeah I think so that's that the, the, that main, the, main, <laughs> the main purpose of the token okay so so the the data providers uh, put up a bond then there's a dispute mechanism that allows uh, a counterparty to dispute the validity of, of data and then there's a process through which um, uh, there's a decision that's made on the validity of that data, and then the the bond, I suppose, is burned. Um, it, it, that that's it. Appears to me that there might be an up um, an attack mechanism here where someone could, um, you know, if they want to sabotage uh, a data provider, um, just create uh, you know many disputes on um, on a data feed. Is there like a also something at stake for uh, one who is making a, a dispute claim, like a bond that they also have to put up? Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Which... So, so being a whistleblower is not, let's say, obviously we don't want the, the protocol to be spammed with the false alerts. So, any whistleblower, we need to to provide a minimum stake on his side to to prevent like raising false alarm. Yeah, it's typical. Mm. So I, I guess I kind of want to understand a little bit more of this RE smart contract uh, system. So can, I mean, yeah, I think, I think you guys are maybe the two people that I know who understand it the, the most. Um, and I, 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 some, some people have tried to explain it to me, but it just hasn't, I, I haven't quite understood. So hopefully uh, you guys can fix that. Um, yeah, like how does how does it work? Like, I mean, what how does it work, and how is it different from, say, a contract on Ethereum or like a Cosmosm contract on um, on Cosmos, which I think most people most people are more familiar with those uh, two designs. Which I do you want to start because I was like monopolizing. <laughs> well, 
I think, uh, well, um, yeah, I guess to come in kind of a high level. Um, so I think if, if you describe how the, how, how, uh, say an Ethereum, uh, smart contract works, um, this, you write code, it's converted in some kind of bytecode, And then this is executed in what we call the Ethereum virtual machine, which, um, runs on all the miners and all the miners execute this code and the execution of that code is recorded on a blockchain. And so then future miners can then pick up, confirm and verify and continue. All right. So, so a lot of the, so the execution is happening, um, within the miners and stored on chain with our weave, um, since we have this permanent hard drive, <clears throat> we could we could write quite a bit of you know of data to it and then deal with the verification and processing later. And so the way that the smart weave contract works, uh, from my understanding, and and, and Jacob could pro can probably go much detail uh, than I can. Um, basically, we store the state and the contract on our weave. And the execution and verification of those contracts are done, are pushed onto the client. So I, I believe they call it um, lazy execution. Uh, Jacob, do you, do you remember what, what the, yeah, lazy execution. So basically you're only storing state and contracts on chain. And then you execute and verify off, off chain on the client. And I think that's where we found at Accord, I mean, we use Redstone's smart contract system uh, for what we're doing. And... Um, while that in theory works there there's quite a bit of infrastructure that has to be put in place to make it practical and you and you um being able uh, to, to be able to use it in production and so i think that's probably a good place for jacob to, t to start his uh, kind of go into detail about the redstone smart contracts and how how you've implemented and improved uh the uh smart weave contract system because basically you guys rewrote it from scratch right if i understand yeah, so, so I think that the credit for the for the idea has to go to to Sam, the the Arby founder, who who prototyped okay. the, the the first version. Yeah, I was like, it's super interesting. So, yeah, so at, at the first glance, definitely a lot of people think that yeah, it's a scam, it will never work, etc., because it's so different than the current uh, design part of the smart contract space. But if you look deeper, it's actually like super smart to to mm -hmm. detach the two phases of the of the data storage and, and the data execution. So if you get a system when you can actually achieve a consensus on the, the pure transactions without executing them, so if you can order and persist transactions and with the assumption of the deterministic executions that the same set of transactions in the same order will always get you to the same result, mm -hmm. then you could, should be able to detach these two phases. So, so have a very cheap consensus on the ordering and storage of transaction and then delegate the execution to to another services. I think it's also getting popular in the, the, the current roll-up patterns when they mm -hmm. try to to compress the transaction, put put a proof on chain and then move execution to the layer two network. So stuff like that is getting more and more popular and that's also the, the reason why solutions like Celestia are popping up, which is a chain dedicated for data availability when you can actually have this transaction storage and then connect it to different execution environments. And as, as Richard mentioned, yeah, in theory, it looks really, really cool, but if you get to to this, uh, let's say, <laughs> implementation part, then there could be a lot of 
really interesting challenges, like actually how to make it fast and efficient, how to deal with the, the data access, the necessary indexing, how to sequence the, the transaction put ordering, uh, how, how just to make it, um, let's say, efficient enough to be production ready. Because theoretically it's a fascinating concept, but then if you delegate all of the execution, you need to also think like who will be executing the code whether it could be fast if you need to re-execute like all of the historical transactions, how to efficiently cache the, the the execution, how can you take snapshots of states, mm-hmm. not to rework the full history, etc. So there are a lot of super interesting uh, challenges and we try to solve it one after another, still being able to, to offer the solution to, to other projects. So, okay, so maybe just uh, to yeah. sum up here. So with with a with a sort of EVM design contract, we have the execution that is performed by minders. The state transitions themselves are stored on the chain. Um, in in addition to the in, into the data, and so in order to reconstruct uh, and to verify all of the all the transactions. We have to go through the state transitions to make sure that all those are correct. Right. Whereas with uh, with an Arweave contract, the contract and the and the and the state are yes. stored on chain. And what you do is you say, okay, this is the contract. This is what was run. This is the resulting state. And so you have to rerun. You don't have the state transitions on the chain, but you have the uh, the state, and so you could technically just run a contract on your client locally, and then store that on the ch- and store the the resulting state on the chain. Yeah. So, so in other words, you got all of the the, the inputs on chain, and you can always reevaluate the state mm. to to get an output. But it's like totally detached. So, so the, the the consensus mechanism doesn't require you to execute transaction. And therefore, it could be much more scalable. So, yeah. so, so the benefits that we get are that you don't have to store the state transition on chain, which I guess is what takes up a lot of space. You just have to put the contract and then the inputs and the outputs. Um, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So if you imagine a transaction that is like really resource heavy, like like data processing transaction, which is currently impossible in any EVM, compatible chain because it can slow down the whole, let's say other transactions. So it will get out of the block uh, limit. And and therefore, if you detach the, the execution and you simply store an input as an order to be executed later on, you can fit a really heavy transactions and then try to execute that in, let's say, dedicated network whenever you actually need that state. Okay, and who who like if if the if the execution is being done by a single client, who's verifying um, who's verifying these state transitions? Um, and yeah, like how does that work in a practical sense? Mm-hmm. Yes, sure. So you you got the code, you got the inputs, and if you are and honest, 
user, you always get to the, the correct result. And so anyone can, can, let's say, verify the end state. Anyone has all of the necessary ingredients to verify the end state. And is this quick to verify? Like, can, can my client just look no, at the chain and like no. verify an entire <laughs> no, contract? Yeah. At, at the moment, it's, in the original form, it's not quick to verify. That's why, and yeah, it's, it's let's say, honestly, it's a naive approach to require every end user to recreate the state. That's why we are building a, a dedicated, like a delegated execution networks. Uh, like a, this is a complex uh, structure that we are putting together that should help you to, to first get answer faster, second level as the dedicated node to, to, to evaluate the state and to verify the result much quicker. So yeah, like having like a snapshot rollups out of the networks that should be confirmed by by the major of rather like with a fraud proofs that should be refused by the majority so the client can trust snapshot and only reevaluate the, the smaller part that should be possible for let's say end users okay and so is this so and then what what are the what are the trade-offs in terms of like can you still achieve the same type of composability as you can on a on an mm -hmm. EVM chain or is that more? Does that make it more complicated? It makes it much more complicated. I mean, yeah. you, you, you nailed that trade-off perfectly yeah. well. So, yeah, we are working on cross-contract calls. They are much harder to implement, and they they require some innovative thinking. It's, it's possible, but definitely, I'm not going to to refuse the statement that in terms of composability, we won't be as composable as as EVM or networks like like Solana when they get a very single state accessible to others. But on the other hand, we are much more scalable and we, we allow like really heavy computation that won't fit in a block. So, so that's the spectrum. You get a lot of flexibility, you get a lot of scalability, but then the composability is much harder, but, but still in our view possible. And we do cross-contract calls, although they are much more expensive to, to evaluate. Hmm. Also, by its very nature, it's parallel. Uh, it's executions mm -hmm. in parallel, right? So you're pushing it to the client. Yeah. And like uh, Jacob was saying, you can have some contracts that could be very computationally expensive, run that in parallel. There's no no impact on the overall system. Mm. Yeah. So are there, are there use cases that are kind of geared towards this type of uh, design pattern? Yeah. Or, you know, or is this something that you all think are going to be, is going to be generalized? Um, well, if I may, Jacob, <laughs> I think from a, from a Accord's perspective, it was a, a a perfect match for what we were doing. So maybe just to talk two minutes about that. So we originally built Accord with a particular blockchain in mind, but the blockchain didn't exist. So we built this kind of protocol uh, that we ran in our internal blockchain, just waiting for the the blockchain to arrive. And luckily, it was Arweave. And so basically. Everything that we do in, in Accord, whether it be creating a new vault, inviting people to the vault or members to the vault, uploading files, revisions to the files, posting notes, and things like that, all of these kinds of activities which happen encrypted in a vault. Um, e each, each action is encapsulated as a transaction on Arweave. 
And so what we're able to do is just map our protocol and transaction set directly over to SmartWeave's uh, contract. And um, that allowed us to just port things very quickly. And essentially what we're trying to create is this like kind of like audit trail of each of this um, of the states in time for that vault, right? And those and, states- And, and pointing out that you yeah. guys are, are building a sort of decentralized Dropbox- Right, uh, with, exactly. With um, versioning, like document versioning, right. traceability. Yeah. yeah, and notes and editing and messaging and collaboration features, all of that. So it's very, very interactive. And um, where, where I was getting at was like, so we're doing a lot of heavy encryption and decryption. So that is one of the examples where we can offload that onto the client. Hmm. It has to be on the client if you want end to end encryption. And then just send over bits and then record those as uh, state transactions in the protocol, right? In, in our weave. And so that worked out really well for us. It, we were able to uh, deploy our protocol, I mean, within just a few weeks. So it was, it was pretty quick for us. Um, where we ran into a hurdle was, or we ran into obstacles where um, uh, our weave started getting very saturated. The gateways were saturated. We couldn't commit. Uh, transactions and then um, we were also trying to address some of the like remote calls and stuff like that um, which Redstone was able to address and so um, so yeah I think uh, yeah I'll let Jacob take it from here I think that's kind of a short story for us <laughs> yeah it's a good amazing example definitely something we've been thinking of and it's great that it's yeah. been validated by, by Richard and, and Echo yeah. And so, so there is a the the data processing logic when you need to have a like a, a lot of access to, to the basic storage, which probably is, is impossible in into chains like EVM based chains. But also, if you'd like to think of any application that actually mix some storage and, and logic, like like native NFT processing, when you do really some manipulation with the true NFTs instead of like passing ownership of hashes or if you do any transformation of uh, yeah. content like like atomic NFTs. Yeah, like yeah. Comp also a company that uses us and that's processing the the digital recording songs PNET. It's like super interesting. So there's also like heavy data processing. Also probably from the metaverse uh, ecosystem when there is that the projects are forced to to process heavy loads of of, of data rendering information etc that could be quite an interesting angle for us yeah and any kind of like a, either heavy computation or a lot of uh, input output requests that's a good match and as, as i mentioned as, as a trade of the composability could be limited. Yeah, there's a couple other things I'd like to mention. I, you, you mentioned the NFTs. Um, I think they're, I believe they're called atomic NFTs on Arweave. And so, what, what's one an of the, atomic NFT? Yeah. Okay. So, so, <laughs> so earlier on, we talked about how <clears throat> with NFTs, you've got the contract, essentially the uh, token, stored on one chain, and then you have the data, the graphic, the JPEG, or whatever it may be stored somewhere else and in this case are we've so you've got two you, you've got the the um nft split into two parts token and um data and so what are we've unlocked was okay we can not only store the data but we can also 
write the contract for the token and they're inseparable on the chain mm, okay right yeah, so that's cool. that's, that's what it calls um atomic nfts so it's just one complete unit and then there are some other projects in the ecosystem um that allow you to bridge those tokens so you can have the token live on uh, Arweave and then trade it on Solana or Ethereum, something like that, right? Basically wrapping it somehow. So, um, so that's very interesting. Um, there was a second. Um, oh, there was another use case that was really interesting. Um, I'll come back to this later, <laughs> so I can remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. No, that makes the. I, I, I think I understand a little bit better now that like. So, how does this fit into? the cross-chain thesis, because this is one of the things we were mm -hmm. talking about uh, when we were at dinner the other night. And um, you know, I, I really want to discuss here, like, so with, with regards to Redstone and the, the oracles that you provide, the data you provide, how, how does that uh, fit into the improbability thesis that say we have on Cosmos? And, um, and I guess more broadly, like, where does this fit also in this, uh, modular blockchain idea like uh, like this this idea that's pushed by project by like celestia um or we're hoping to see in ethereum too can you kind of unpack all of that and mm -hmm. maybe make it a little bit clearer because it, 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 it's still a bit nebulous for me sure so so let's start with the, with the latest uh, the modular blockchain design so when we start building our uh, smart contract uh, infrastructure then definitely having to to work on the on the storage layer secure storage layer and then the secure consensus uh, layer and uh, the data availability proofs all of that from the beginning as a as a which is often called like a monolith if you'd like to create the protocol starting literally from scratch it will like take us probably like five to ten years to get it secure but actually, there's like a pretty good and solid storage network called Arweave. Also, like Celestia is entering this space, which could be like a really good uh, composable um, component because Celestia focuses on the short term, very strong availability proofs. When Arweave is amazing in the long term data storage and having a full history of a chain. And then obviously, we'll be using. Cosmos for the interconnectivity of our execution networks. So they can yeah, be kept accountable with their stake and that the correctness of the computation could be verified and roll up to, to that network. So, so we use a, a major pieces of technology like, like Arweave, Cosmos, probably Celestia and try to glue them together, adding our own magic sauce, which is the, the economic model and the ability to um, target the solution to a given use case, which in our terms are data processing, or let's say that the, the flexible smart contract execution. So in this modular world, you try to experiment using all of these amazing tools that were already developed and try to creatively join them together to to create a blockchain with a unique features. So that's can you can you elaborate a little bit on this on this uses the Cosmos SDK and because uh -huh. uh, I'm not quite sure I understand like how you guys are using are you using yeah. IBC to, to for, or 
No, so 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 we uh, I mentioned briefly like it's not feasible to expect all of the end users to fully re-execute the transaction. So there is a need for dedicated professional evaluators that can form networks and to keep them accountable and incentivize them to provide correct answers. There need to be a mechanism where they can usually like leave a collateral, provide a stake that could be slash, etc. So there is a need for a network to manage that uh, coordination. And for that, we'll be using Cosmos. So that we like a typical Cosmos okay. with probably ABCI extension or the new plus plus version. Okay, understood. Yeah, all right. So, so you'll be making use of the Cosmos SDK uh, to build a Cosmos chain that will enforce um, this uh, sort of in incentive mm -hmm. mechanism to provide data. Okay. So are you planning to launch this as a as a standalone Cosmos chain with your own validator set, or will you be using like interchain security? Or so we are going to start from the standalone chain, and, and we, we see what kind of an extra value can we get from the interability with the other Cosmos chains. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, because I mean, at, at a minimum, like yeah. I think, like yeah, being able to mm -hmm. uh, like have your token uh, as like an IBC token, like tradable on DEXs, like like Osmosis and stuff, is kind of interesting. Um, and but I, I don't know, like what other, what like what other uh, yeah, you know benefits would come from having um, this chain be interoperable with the uh, with the rest of the Cosmos ecosystem. I don't know, maybe they can delegate like, you know, data storage logic to, to us. I think this is again yeah, amazing yeah. Yeah, let's say, way to, to explore the potential synergies. Yeah. Um, and then, so, so, okay. So I think, I think I'm getting a clearer picture here where Celestia uh, is really strong with short-term data availability. And I like, I haven't really dove deep into Celestia yet. Mm -hmm. Like that's an episode that I want to do uh, soon. Um, uh, you guys are um, better suited for long-term data availability because you're using Arweave uh, as the data layer. And so um, is it something that can be used in, um, in coordination with Celestia or is it for two different types of use cases? Is it like two different types of use cases or is it like a, you know, execute on Celestia and then like backup on, on SmartWeave or are we looking at like different types of applications here? Yeah, so I think they're very complementary, and we, we're thinking about the solution like, like Celestia to provide a really strong data validity guarantees, especially between before the transaction could be properly seeded on the Arif network. And yeah, we are like super, super happy that the guys from Celestia are implementing that. We recently visited the modular summit and definitely we, we are going to be like early adopters testing out the solution. Unfortunately, it's not like production ready yet, but I think it's amazing potential to, to connect it to, to site of a continuum of data storage to because Celestia incentivize the, the data availability in the short period of time. Why are we with some amazing of the, the permanent storage guarantee, but not as as quick as Celestia to give the 
the data validity proofs. And this is an amazing piece of technology with the erasure proofs. Really cool stuff. Richard, you're muted. Sorry about that. Yeah, so I believe that the saying is like uh, it's uh, permanence over performance is what uh, RWeb is uh, tuned for. One of, one of the other things that, I, that just came back to my mind when we're talking about use cases with Arweave, I, I think there's something interesting to say um, here. So, you know, when we have data on chain, when we have the application, because the application itself is data files that can be stored on chain as well. And then you have a token with logic and, and you know, contracts and things like that. So you basically have data application and business model all running on the same chain. And I think that's, that is like where web three can take us like this whole idea that a business model and the data and the app, everything is together on chain and it's available for as long as that blockchain is available. Um, that, that be, that be, that starts to become something very interesting. And for like, for what we're doing at Accord, um, there's this model that I, I believe it was Sam, I may be mistaken, but I believe it was Sam, he introduced what was called uh, profit sharing tokens. And so this is where you can build your application and then the business model that, you know, you, you pay. Um, so in this kind of model, you only pay for what you use, whereas a web 2.0 model, you have a subscription fee and you pay, you know, 20 bucks a month or something like this or 40 bucks a month with a uh, profit sharing token model, you only pay for what transactions you commit, right? So if I create a vault, I pay. If I add people to that vault, I pay. And what that means is that each transaction, the fee that you pay basically has three components. One component is a transaction fee. So you pay the miners to confirm the transaction. The second component is the storage endowment. So you depending on how much data is uh, included with your transaction, you pay uh, upfront for that storage on Arweave. And that money go, that the, the tokens go to a crypto endowment that are projected to grow over time. And then as storage costs decrease over time, the difference between the two is the incentive for miners to, to store the data. And then the third component of what you're paying for is you're paying a community fee. And so if you have a protocol with token holders behind the protocol, that community fee is paid back to the token holders. So now you've got this like incredible potential built up in a flywheel, right? So as people start using the application, they start using the protocol, they're creating transactions. Those transactions are generating fees. The fees are being paid back to the miners, to the storage endowment and to the token holders. And then this just kind of like picks up momentum over time. And that's an incredibly powerful model. Um, not too many people know about it. Uh, it's a very new kind of like interesting idea with, with the R, within the Arweave community. But I think it's one of the ideas in that community that has the most potential. Yeah, I know you, you've been telling me about this model for uh, for a while, and I know how uh, I know how, how bullish you are. On I mean, it's our, the dream. Our it's the dream, yeah. right? <laughs> Data, app, and business all on one chain. Like, yeah, in, full, fully integrated. Um, I, I think we'll we'll see a lot of that uh, develop into the future, especially as Web three becomes more adopted. User ownership of data, you know, you're you're buying, you're you're owning part of what you're already using, and so mm. 
if you look at the incentive structures of Web 2.0, the incentive structures are set uh, basically for the investors of the Web 2 project. Money goes into the team, team produces product, product gets used by customers, but the data starts to become very valuable. So you look at Facebook, you look at a lot of social media, it becomes very controversial, and na, 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 na. And then you also you have like, you know, users are now locked in. Maybe they need this much of your product, but they still have to pay the same amount as everyone else, right? So everything's really stack incentivized towards the, those who hold data and those who are investing in services uh, to build around data. With the Web3 model, where data, application, business model are all in chain, people own tokens, and that's their like stake in the protocol. Um, they're using the same protocol that they have a stake in. Suddenly, the incentive structures are all lined up between the developers, the investors, and the users of a system. And so that, that, that's what I'm trying to describe is in a flywheel kind of analogy that, that once these incentive structures become all aligned, um, like really interesting things can happen. So I guess there's yeah. a lot to say about that. We continue talking about that for another hour. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to do another, another uh, episode about... Uh about the economics of our weave um because yeah. like, this, this is oh, this, a, it's, it's yeah. something it's something you, you <laughs> keep telling me about and, and I, I keep trying to wrap my head around and uh you know yeah. other friends of ours are also trying to wrap their head around and um <laughs> you know you seem to be very very keen on this vision and you know i think you're probably right about it uh just that we're it's too early for us to even <laughs> under, you know comprehend what's going on uh but yeah thanks uh thanks to both of you for uh for doing this with me yeah. and you know, diving deep into into all this stuff um uh, yeah, thanks for having us uh, yeah no problem Jakob, where can people learn more about redstone and is there a call to action here yeah sure so so we invite everyone to to our website redstone.finance or you can find us on on the twitter come there's a link to to our discord come ask questions we are like super open we recently launched an initiative called redstone academy and try to teach how to implement the contract starting from the very beginning. So even if you're from the web 2.0 and not familiar with all of these crazy blockchain terms, we try to take you by hand and introduce to all of that step-by-step, -step, showing the, the tools, how to test your code, how to deploy in the very safe environment, how to just step-by-step start building on, on our with using our contracts and exploring the space. So yeah, we, we, we are really open and try to, to help you to implement the, the, even the most craziest ideas there. Cool. And uh, yeah, Rich, maybe uh, take this opportunity to to shill a chord a little bit uh, <laughs> and uh, what you guys are doing. Well, we're happy just to talk about, you know, I think on this show, but the, uh, our partnership with Redstone, um, we've published some articles on the blog talking about what we're doing together. Um, and a lot of this will be coming open source in the near future, uh, weeks, if not uh, next month or so. So, um, yeah, just to, if I were to show a chord, yeah, we're, we're here to help protect the data that you care about the most. Um, and we're going to help you take care of that data until the apocalypse. So that's our goal. <laughs> and the website is Accords. It's Accord.com. A -A yeah. Right. I've used the chord. I like it. I, I used it for... Uh... We're using it to like share legal documents and stuff like that, and it's like this is this is this is like little vault sort of. It feels like a signal chat, but where you can also 
you know, drop documents and, and things like that. So I think it's like, yeah. has a lot of promise. Well, we hope to deliver the uh, developer tools uh, this summer. So we'll be very interested. Um, one of the areas that we're interested most in taking it is to provide DAO tooling. So providing long-term storage for your DAOs, storing your votes, your documents, and things like that to help uh, to help provide the DAO members the, the information and data that they need um, over you know a long period of time, potentially multi generational. That is, yeah. That's cool. Feels like it's your life's work. I, I've known you for long enough to know that like this is something you've been working for on for a long time and in, in various iterations. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> feels very much like this is something that you like really want to achieve. Like being able to you know preserve preserve data, um, you know, have integrity of data and privacy around data. Yeah. You know, so it's cool, guys. Well, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, and uh, yeah, have, have a great rest of your day or evening. All right, you too. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Sebastian. Ciao. It was great to be there.